Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 140th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the relentless MTG Finance propaganda machine extraordinaire. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-FaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on Magic Singles and Sealed product with shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out Face-to-Face card pricing via MTGPrice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott. A- I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin'. And we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good afternoon. Well, I guess good evening, James. How are you? Hi, hi, Travis. Did you enjoy your time on the Finger Lakes? I did. It was perfect fall weather, lovely leaves, and we enjoyed it from the uh, sanctity of indoors, refusing to look out the windows and only playing board games was uh was a good time, good time. It, it really has been a lovely fall in the areas of north america that are not subject to hurricane action yeah right um <clears throat> got a great show this week uh we have with us martin yuza uh grand prix extraordinaire and bon vivant at large uh he'll be joining us in segment four to talk about uh his role in magic finance which is definitely a unique one um, given that he is one of the few players in the Platinum Club. So it'll be curious to see how uh, how that sounds. Uh, in the meantime, our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. What's on the agenda this week? Uh, well, this week we have a show in four segments. Segment one is our top movers. We'll talk about the cards that have moved the most in price this week. Segment two, our cards to watch. We will go through the cards that we uh, think may rise in price in the future. Segment three, our metagame week in review. This was a two limited GPs this past weekend. So we have one MTG top eight, uh, MTGO event that we can cover. Um, and finally, segment four, our topic of the week, uh, Martin Yuza will be joining us. All right, so let's get started with segment one, our top movers. First card of the week, Library of Alexandria out of Arabian Nights. 1250 to $1,500 value, that's $250, but percentage-wise, a meager 20%. Uh, but James, I think uh, you slotted this in here because you are a big fan of it in the, going forward. Is that correct? Yeah, this is a card that I flagged last winter as one of my picks to go from 1000 to 2000 within 12 to 18 months. I think it's easily going to get there. The <clears throat> I buy-listed a whole bunch of stuff uh, and ratcheted up into two libraries from, I believe it was Card Kingdom, um, in and around, I think maybe 1100 or something like that. And not at all surprised to see continual pressure on this. It's been oscillating in this 1250 to 1500 zone. So um, street price is going to be largely dependent on you know how much pressure the market continues to bring to bear. We're also maybe facing a recession on that could impact high-end sales in the next couple of years. So we'll see how it goes, but still, still like it long-term. Okay. And I mean, it's hard to disagree with the growth we've seen on all these reserveless cards um, <clears throat> that, that it won't get there. Right. Especially after we've kind of, we, we, there, we had a big explosion for a little while. Now it's pulled back a little bit and this might be a time to, uh, to start getting back in on some of those. Following that is Lyra Dawnbringer out of Dominaria. 
22 to 24 for another 20% gain. Uh, but definitely a very curious card to keep an eye on at the moment. It's in about a third of all decks uh, with an average of 2.5 each. Um, you know, even at $25, this seems like it could hit 30 or possibly even 35. Uh, really, the only thing preventing it that could prevent it from that is the existence of Teferi in the same set. Also, one of several standard hot movers this week on this list. This might be the most standard rich list we've seen all year. As the standard season heats up, um, looking like a pretty good metagame developing. Uh, lots of people obviously playing playing and purchasing standard cards, and specs have been popping off left, right, and center. Um, Those fools. <laughs> I mean, I like selling uh, Lyra Dawnbringer uh, into the current situation. You want it somewhere between here and the Pro Tour is probably where you want to be unloading. The longer you wait, you do have the potential to get further up the curve, especially with the Mythics um, from last fall or last spring. But on the flip side, the meta may can narrow or uh, kick the deck out. So you really want to be anything you're willing to hold should be cards that show up in multiple archetypes. Right. Which, I mean, Lyra does do, but you, you can never be. It seems less permanent than something like the fairy does. Sure. So next on the list, similar story out of the Boros Angels deck, uh, Resplendent Angel out of M19, uh, Mythic going from 15 to 20. People got uh, access to these at a significantly lower price point because it didn't have a deck uh, prior to this incarnation of the meta in standard. So uh, I never laid hands on any of these, um, but uh, congratulations to anybody who's got the chance now to sell into the hype. Yeah, I wrote about this on one of my Watchtower articles a week or two ago um, as the best card out of the Boros Midrangel strategy. Uh, everything else was already fairly valuable or kind of one-dimensional or maybe it was a rare, but this was sort of right at the perfect uh, apex of being a mythic and from a good set to get in on and also wasn't that popular yet and also was a 4x of, in this deck. Uh, so I'm not I'm not too surprised to see it here, uh, but I like you would just be getting rid of it now um, instead of trying to tempt fate. Yeah, I mean some of these some of the angel cards, especially foils, will probably have a home uh, in EDH Commander long term. Angels is a thing, um, mm-hmm. specifically because of Kalia of the Vast, and and certainly there are other viable angel commanders if you really love angels. Um, but that's a longer term play. And I think in the short term, especially for non-foils, you just want to be leveraging the surge in demand uh, on for standard state, freshly minted standard staples that are from last year that are going to rotate next fall because your window is relatively narrow. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, there's angel permanent angel demand, but that can't replace standard demand. <clears throat> After that is Sulfur Falls, also out of Dominaria, uh, up a couple bucks, also from Innistrad too, by the way, of course. Um, looks like a top 25 standard card uh, and 20% of standard decks, actually. Um, and it looks like you're targeting to sell this in the low teens. Yeah, so if if the blue-red decks post up as tier one and standard for a while, then sometime in the next six weeks, you might be able to unload these a little higher or trade out at a value closer to you know 12 to 15. But if you popped a bunch of Dominaria, as many of us did, and you just happen to have some sitting around on your desk and you're not playing Blue-Red, um, you know, despite the fact that this card also sees some use in Modern, um, if you've already got your playset there, then there's no reason for you to be hanging on to superfluous copies. Um, you know, sometime 
between now and the holidays, you're gonna you're gonna have your best opportunity to get out. Would be my guess. And if not, then then you know four to six weeks after um, people recover from you know their holiday bills in like say mid February, if blue red standard is a thing at that point, which could be called into question based on what comes in the next set. Um, you know, because we already got is it right? So we're not getting them in the next set. So blue red doesn't necessarily get much reinforcement there, uh, which would lead me to believe that sooner better than later to get rid of yourself for false. Mm-hmm. And it could, it is, it could continue to be a tier one strategy going forward, but if it can't hold its weight now, well, it's got more support than the other color pairs. It's hard to imagine it getting that much better after the next set. Um, but we don't, and, and we don't really know the color breakdown of the third set, I suppose, the third Ravnica set, uh, last time it was sort of just distributed, which I imagine they'll do again this time, but not, we we don't know that for sure at this time. I think that, again, I think the third set's going to be something wacky. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, I remember you mentioning that. Yeah. Like an all colorless set or some craziness, like who knows? It almost uh, feels like it'd be too early to do that. Even with Battle for Zenikar, like it's colorless specifically, it feels like it would be weird to do that after Battle for Zenikar. I just have suspicions that we're going to the meditation plane, the mm-hmm. place where Bolas posts up and that where the connections with Ugin all come together and something about Ugin's spirit is going to help defeat Bolas or something. Mm. It all just reeks to me, the way that they've been handling it PR wise reeks to me of like the first two sets being fairly standard Ravnica revisits. And then they really shake things up in the third. So Mm. to what extent that that occurs, who knows? And there's no real way to capitalize on it until we know more. They're going to release planeswalkers, but it will be P L A I N S and it will revisit the mechanic of having planes walk which only like two cards in the history of magic have had. I'm calling it now. <laughs> yeah. Apparently you don't think that's viable. <laughs> All right. Following that is a uh, Vraska relic seeker out of Ixalan 14 up towards 20. Um, all, a, a popular card in standard right now, a big part of all of the Golgari decks that we're seeing. Um, this didn't get too much traction at the time Ixalan was released, but it's certainly looking a lot better now. Uh, and as we see when we look at the stand results from uh, later or later this afternoon, that uh, <clears throat> Golgari is clearly a, an important part of standard at the moment. Yeah, there's tons of green black decks running around, and Braska Relic Seeker, despite being a six casting cost planeswalker, shows up usually as a two of when she's there. She's in the top 25 deck cards in the format. Uh, another one of these situations where even if she's going to push 25 or 30, which I think would be much more likely if she was a typical four of, not a typical two of, um, in this, if you just pop these in packs or you grabbed a bunch in the like eight to $12 range or whatever, this is definitely your the time where you start thinking about unloading. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's next for us? Next on the list, we've got Secrets of the Dead, which is more of an Moldrotha EDH card. I picked up a bunch of these foils somewhere in the like maybe dollar to two dollar range or something. This is like a was a nothing card out of Dark Ascension uh, until Moldrotha showed up. But this does so much work in the Moldrotha deck that I'm not surprised to see this slowly and steadily building up, and it'll probably end up as a you know a ten to fifteen dollar rare a little further down the road. Okay, seems seems reasonable. Uh, following that is Jade right. Light. Is- mm-hmm. Actually, is Secrets of the Dead even a rare? Just let me double check that. <clears throat> uh, wait, I'm thinking about bad information. Isn't this the enchantment? 
Yeah, this is uh, might be an uncommon. This is ascension. an uncommon from Dark Ascension. Yeah. Okay. But Dark Ascension is for far enough back down the path. It may as well be a rare. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're still fine in that regard. Foils wise. I wouldn't get too excited about non foils. Yet. Oh, sure. 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 Yeah. 100% agree on that point. Uh, following that is Jade Light Ranger non foils uh, uh, Rivals of Ixalan. Uh, 8 to 13, currently the 6th most played card in standard, uh, virtually always a 4 of. Uh, I also wrote about this right around the time I wrote about Relic Seeker. Uh, Jade Light Ranger was showing up in all the various stripes of Golgari. Again, Golgari is doing great in standard right now. This was also <clears throat> a well, uh, well-received well card when Rivals of Ixalan released. So we know that there was precedence for it being good and desirable, which helps quite a bit. Um, people recognize it as a good card so when the price starts to move it feels more warranted than if it was a random 20 cent card that was suddenly getting good uh so along for the ride here you know if you can get 15 for these i really like selling them at this point because that's basically the very close to the hard limit of a standard card uh in a standard rare right now yeah uh very similar to the others this one is a little might have more room to run it's it has a similar profile to uh Vraska's contempt uh in the sense that it is almost always played as a, a four of it's the sixth most plays card in standard um as with Vraska's, it rotates next fall um and it sits it's very unlikely to get bumped out of its slot because it is so efficient at what it does at that three casting cost price uh three casting cost point on the curve so uh, i think it was a jim casali pick a while back, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and that seems like it was a good call. People that got in relatively early on this should be able to unload successfully. Yep, I would I would guess. What follows that for us? Next on the list, we've got Vivian Reed from M19. And non-foils going from 10 to 20 for a double up. Um, when there's a Mythic Planeswalker, or really any Mythic from a late summer set that eventually becomes a thing in standard, you have a good chance of a pop. Uh, we're seeing that here with Resplendent Angel and again with Vivian Reed. Um, and there's another card on this list that's also from that set and seeing movement. Um, always worth looking at uh, high power level cards that don't necessarily have a standard deck yet in those late summer sets. Um, J- Vivian Reed is decent demand from the green decks. Uh, given the average number of copies being played and the fact that there's like like very little cross format play, like maybe this season play in EDH at some point, but it's never going to be like a major factor there. Um, all of that adds up to go ahead and sell now that it's at 20, especially if you were in early. Yep. Uh, as with all these standard pops, you know, once you get some considerable traction, it's almost always correct to sell on them. Uh, it's not that the cards can't increase, but the eye, you know, it gets harder and harder the higher it goes. Uh, and you'd much rather lock in your profits and get greedy and then lose it all because it fades out of the metagame. Uh, and I say this from, way too much experience uh so just you know standard is not the place to get greedy essentially uh following that is star of extinction out of inkslon uh two bucks up to five seen play in the grixis grixis dragons deck in standard uh just a good way to nuke the hell out of something i suppose um it's also in about a thousand edh decks which is quite a an impressive um a number giving the Ixalan is still very new, and this isn't a card that I would consider to be a important component of most EDH decks. Uh, so, you know, that much play pattern in that format for a card like this is pretty cool. 
uh, you know, I don't, I'd have to go look at the foils, but that seems like there could definitely be some, uh, some fertile ground there, depending on where those are sitting. So I'm going to go look right now. So Arclate Phoenix was flagged by a lot of people because it is a creature that can potentially uh, pop into play for free, which has been a thing that has led to degeneracy, specifically in modern before. Um, And sure enough, people are testing versions of uh, a red deck uh, in modern that run uh, Steamkin uh, from Guilds of Ravnica foils, uh, one of the only foils I bought from that set early on at the $5 price mark. Um, And Arclate uh, Phoenix foils as a is it's a mythic right? Um, uh, probably. Pretty sure it is. Um, have popped from eight dollars to over yep. twenty for one hundred and seventy five percent gain. It's got a smattering of top eight finishes already in some lesser modern tourneys as a four of, um, and that would be enough to get me interested if the price was still low. If I can find any copies uh, overseas. Um, anywhere near $10. I'll probably scoop a couple play sets up just in case this thing ends up being a thing in modern. Um, this is one of the these situations where it could easily just end up on the fringes for a while, but um, at the old price, it was fairly attractive. At the new price, not so much. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and just to double back, foil star of extinctions are about 12 bucks, and there is all of 20-ish on TCG player right now. Uh, so if you were seeing non-foils at five and foils at 12 and it's a thousand EDH decks, I don't, I don't know if I want to call that a buy, but it feels really close. Uh, if you can get them at 10 or less, I think I probably like them just because there's, you're really not going to see this in foil again anytime soon. Uh, and it is a very big splashy effect. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole bunch of combos and I think that some of this pressure has come from streamer and article uh, focus um, from people doing funny uh, very amusing things with it um but it's not a card that i really want to be jumping on board with there's just so many other options right now sure you know if you find them at your store mm-hmm. and they're underpriced by a little bit maybe they're worth snagging it but i agree i'm not i'm not going ham for these this next one is a pretty nice bulk bin uh pick something that almost many because of the number of times this has been printed most of us will have at least a couple of copies of this sitting around that we should throw into a trade binder or add to a buy list order in the near future. Banefire seeing uh, extensive play in standard right now. It's a top 30 standard card played in two different versions of the red decks. It's got several printings, but buy lists um, are already sitting over $3, um, which is a pretty solid exit. If you just have, you know, four or five copies sitting around in your collection, that can be, you know, stuff you were never going to be able to unload. This brief moment in time where it does something in standard is a great time to go ahead and turn that into a $20 bill. I am completely bewildered that this card is worth this much. Like, I don't understand. This has just been super bulk and there's so many of them. It's just, I don't, I don't, again, I don't get it. Summer, summer set. <laughs> yeah, but it's, summer, it, it was in Alara and Modern Masters. Alara has got to be 10 years ago. I mean, Modern Masters, and, and that's the first Modern Masters, right? So that mean the the joke with Modern Masters, this was 2013, by the way, five years ago. Um, and it was a limited edition set that sold out basically <clears throat> in the first two weeks. But I do remember distinctly opening Bane Fires in that set and being very sad faced mm-hmm, about it. Mm-hmm. Um, time, but I'm going to go dig the couple of copies out I probably have from that and the four or five from other sets and go ahead and buy list them because why not? I, I mean, I bet I have 20 copies of this stashed because yep. it's been bulk for so long. I'm just, I, you, most cards I can kind of understand why I'm talking about them, but this one in particular just. 
Fills fills the finisher role in the red decks and when they need the reach. X spells have done that many times in the past. We've seen, you know, uh, the Bonfire of the Damned that won the Pro Tour or whatever, being not the least uh, version. But certainly a good day for people like Douglas Johnson and and his ilk uh, heavily into the bulk scene because this is the kind of thing where he gets to spend an evening watching Netflix and pulling several hundred dollars out of his bulk pits. Well, you know, I understand... uh where i understand why it's popular i just can't figure out why how it could be that expensive when there's that many but oh well it is what it is it can't last right like the buy the buy list may need to replace copies for a couple weeks and then you may see the buy list price drop so you want to move quickly on this one yeah uh i totally agree i should really do this i won't but i should and i I wouldn't wait to sell it like for an extra dollar on ebay just buy list oh yeah yeah get rid of these instantly uh following that is expansion and explosion a split card from guilds of ravnica non-foils 80 cents to 250 uh this is a a spec i guess is what they're shooting for here uh and in theory the foils are 30 dollars now sure i guess this is this one I, i called this out on twitter as a massive long shot i just don't see it the the front half of this card is the only one that's interesting. This is the one where you get to copy an instant uh, or sorcery that's forecasting cost or less, right? So it's fork. It's, it's an is it fork for CMT4 or less? With upside, you get a kind of weird, bad Sphinx's Revelation where you deal damage and draw cards instead of gaining life and drawing cards. Um, but it costs, like, it's 4x, double red, double black, double red, double blue. So put seven mana into it then you do three damage to somebody and draw three cards um not the kind of card i want to be speculating on in general hmm that's odd now if that now if buy lists get up on this then so be it like if, if people targeted this at 50 cents and they get to buy list it at two dollars and make a 100 bucks or something because they went really deep you know golf clap very nicely done um but i don't think that's going to be on the the basis of demand it's being tested in standard and modern but i haven't seen any winning decks that are running more than a couple copies so as a standard rare that's heading that isn't at peak supply yet like we're probably four weeks out from peak supply on guilds of ravnica ah there's just too much downward pressure and and i don't and i i think buy lists are going to be very weak on the most recently printed standard yeah i I just don't see you getting to move a lot of a non-foil standard split card spec. I don't know. It just, this is, and how much does the instant or sorcery that you're copying have to cost to make this worth playing this card in your deck? And how much are you saving? And then are you able to generate enough? I it just, the math doesn't seem to work in standard. I don't understand it. Now, granted, if this, if you picked up your copies around 75 cents or whatever, the buy list at Card Kingdom's already at two dollars credit, dollar sixty. Really? So you get to double up. Why? Why are so many people buying this card? Maybe is are we sure that it's that it's just people trying to force this as a spec and standard? Maybe it's well the the blue red the is it decks run it, but the only red it run it is a two of a two of rare. Eh, not that excited in a, in a single archetype no less that has to survive. The I'm wondering if there's something else like if there's uh a swell of commander players who want another fork effect 
And it's seen a lot of demand for that reason. You know, something that's basically not going to show up anywhere in terms of metrics, right? Like you're not going to see that in articles or on people talking about on Twitter as much, but casual players are going to swarm it and buy copies of it. It's like how Consumering Aberration was a $250 or $3 card and most people forgot about it the instant they saw it because why would you care about that card? So maybe that's what's going on. Maybe that's or at least part of it. The thing is that there are Jeskai decks winning tournaments in standard that aren't running any copies of this card. Um, in other cases, it's showing up as a two of in the sideboard. Sometimes it's a two of in the main. None of that's exciting enough for me to be buying non-foil copies. But I mean, it reeks to me like this is kind of like a Jeremy spec, right? Like he would talk about, you know, buying two or 300 copies of something and, and unloading them allegedly, uh, whatever anybody who gets to buy these buy list these you've you've done well but it's it has such a high chance of just ending up stuck in your failures box that i just want anything part of it yeah i agree i agree and i'm also not sold that we are getting the full story but i'm still not that interested in it uh next on the list we got sky diamond out of commander 2014 a card that hasn't been printed that many times really so people that spotted that uh, that fact and picked up copies around 50 cents are in pretty decent shape because in theory it's a $2 card now. Um, that's the kind of thing that normally we completely ignore, but buy list is already over a dollar. So if you got them at 50 cents and you're outing at a dollar again, you're doing just fine. Yeah. And I mean, to give credit where it, where it's due uh, and occasionally reluctantly buy lists are really the litmus test for whether or not your spec actually moved, right? Like if the buy list doesn't move, then I don't think you actually pulled it off but if it does move then you, you know it was it was real enough it was as real as it needed to be that's kind of your test so uh if, if they're moving then you did it and as per usual the top mover of the week is a highly dubious card magita the lion from prophecy foils in theory moving from seven dollars to over 45 let's just call that a question mark um this is just hmm. part of the march to target every old foil possible that we see ongoing on a regular basis. Um, there's there's nothing going on here. This is not an important card in Commander. It's not an important card anywhere else. Unless you're collecting foil prophecy sets, you don't have a reason to care. So this is really just a supply side thing where somebody posted up a question mark price. You can safely ignore this one completely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think I have one of these floating around someplace. I bet I can get $45 I mean, for I mean, it's it. a nice looking foil. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it's a cool looking card. All right. Like Let's get more it. excited. Uh, cards to watch. Stuff we think is going to move. Um, I'm jealous because you have the, you definitely have the best one this week, but I'll, I'll dive in with Gusto re- regardless. Um, okay. Jason Alt posted a link to a Reddit post, um, which isn't exactly a formula for excitement normally, but... Which is reading anything Jason writes. Oh! <laughs> This has made me money, so I can't get can't get can't get too into that joke. The uh, especially since he especially since he might make us money I have here. A, um, <clears throat> I have a pile of clerics on my desk from two years ago that would like to speak with him. Fair. So he, but he did warn people away from kitty cats. Um, Underrealm Lich, uh, mythic out of Guilds of Ravnica, uh, sees some play in in the green black decks. Um, but is probably more important as a long-term EDH card. 
Um, buy-in price, I think you target somewhere in the 10 to $12 range with a expectation to get out around 25 I think it's a pretty long hold, like could be two years. Um, so from the perspective of playing it in EDH, go ahead and grab one anytime. Um, price is fine right now for a foil mythic that's going to be useful in the long term. The, the main point here is that this thing does a bunch of broken, broken stuff in decks where it's relevant, like Gitrog and Maldrotha, because it re it replaces every draw instance with its effect. So that means if you're drawing two cards, you look at the top three cards of your library, put one into your hand and the other two into your graveyard, then repeat that process with the next three cards in your library. So that means Mystic Remora triggers, Ristic Study triggers, Brainstorm now reads, look at the top nine cards of your library, keep three, put six in the graveyard, and put two cards from your hand back on top in any order, which is silly in a lot of decks, right? Sylvan Library now reads, mm -hmm. draw nine, keep three at no life loss, and put the other six in your graveyard. <laughs> so <clears throat> graveyard shenanigans are very popular in green black. It's kind of the dominant theme in green black commander decks and between the various popular commanders that are into all of that i could really see this getting there in the long term it could easily end up in the along a similar kind of price path as foil get rogs where it slowly steadily works its way up the curve and then suddenly spikes when supply runs out yeah i totally agree and i I don't even know if you have to wait 18 months to two years. This seems like this could fire off in the space of four to eight months. And I'm not guaranteeing that it would, but it certainly feels like I read that Reddit post and if it is, and it was convincing. Um, so I would say that if it is anywhere near, if it is 80% as good as that Reddit post made it sound, that is pretty darn good. Uh, which could put a lot more pressure on these than expected, especially if no one's really looking at it as an EDH card to begin with. And then suddenly uh, it kind of sells out. It feels like you would have a bigger, a better trip there. It looks pretty nice in your Sidisi Brood Tyrant deck too, right? Uh, yeah, get Rog. I have both Sidisi and Get Rog, and it is solid in both of them. Just being able to choose. <laughs> Which cards go to your graveyard and which ones do not is awesome. And it's a five mana investment, but that indestructibility effect where you pay life is less painful in Commander than anywhere else. And being able to like protect it and keep it in play for longer to get more and more benefit out of it is just ridiculous. It's going to snowball. Yeah, and you know a lot. There's a lot of effects that sidestep indestructibility, so it's not like that sure. amazing, but it's certainly better than. Uh, not having anything at all, you know, it's not going to feel as bad to invest five mana into a four three. Yeah. All right. Hit hit me with the best pick of the week. <laughs> so <clears throat> I had it in my head that somebody told me that Mausoleum Secrets would be way too expensive, would be very a very expensive foil for a long time, and I vehemently disagreed. And we are now about three weeks out. I do not know if that conversation actually happened. By the way, I just decided that it did. Um, we are now about three weeks out of our Gills of Ravnica and foils on Mausoleum Secrets are down to about five bucks, uh, <clears throat> five to six. And I'm just about the point where I want to buy these. I could see possibly trying to play uh, play chicken with a train and wait to them, for them to hit four. But uh, I don't think you're going to be upset to get in at five. Mausoleum Secrets is the two mana black instant speed demonic tutor that counts your creatures in your graveyard and then you get to go look for a black card with converted mana cost of that or less but this card is so powerful and so effective um and foils at five dollars it's going to be huge in edh 
uh, because there's a zillion black cards that you want to go fetch anywhere from. I mean, you can fetch a demonic tutor so that you can go get your non-black card or you can get uh, Rise of the Dark Realms or Damnation or any of the other zillion useful black cards. We're also seeing talk of it being useful in modern because you can fetch Living End for free. Right, you need no creature because Living Hand has no mana cost, so you can search for it with no creatures in play. But if you're playing Dredge, anyways, you're going to have whatever converted mana cost you want, so you can actually play an as foretold Living End deck that then gets to instant speed tutor for its Living Ends, uh, which is also pretty disgusting. Um, yeah, so, so we're talking basically about the black blue version that's running Architects of Will, Curator of Mysteries, Horror of the Broken Lands, Street Wraith, and Striped Riverwinder, all of the zero or one mana cyclers in blue black and then they have a little bit of like controlled delay support in the form of cryptic commands remands thought and yeheni's expertise single copy of ancestral vision and then four mausoleum secrets and four as we're told so this could if this ended up being a thing and i suspect it sticks pretty much on the fringes of modern but if it if it's because there's other shenanigans decks like maybe three or four right you got the hollow one shenanigans you've got the classic dread shenanigans um you've got uh various versions of living end but i've certainly got some foil as foretolds that would like to see pressure upwards and i love like the the, anytime you've got this card where we know it's going to be good in edh like mausoleum secrets is obviously good in edh um long term the foils are great there if it's got any chance of doubling up between modern and commander slam dunk and the fact that these foils are five dollars and and keep in mind that when we did the set review with uh, Todd Stevens uh, three episodes back with Cliff, um, it was on both the modern and the EDH list, uh, but it was at $18 at the time. And Cliff said it can only get black cards, so it's not that good. <laughs> it's not fair to pick on him if he's not here, James. <laughs> you mean you mean I shouldn't mention that he also flagged divine visitation foils and bet me that they weren't going to go down uh, under sixteen dollars, which they did. Oh, yeah, they for- did within a week. I forgot you guys had all sorts of bets on that episode, <laughs> <laughs> and he he got destroyed on that. Uh, not a good week for him, it would seem. Yeah. It, it, it's it's painful for him. I've, I'm still waiting for his tears to arrive in the mail. Mm. Well, yeah, so this card is just it's so good in commander uh, and looks like it could be useful in EDH or uh, in modern. At the very least, we'll keep people eager to try it uh, in general. I think it's just going to be a slam dunk on five dollar foils here. And even if they slip to four in the meantime, you definitely should not feel bad about that. Like you will still do just fine. I bought 10 copies while we were talking. Oh, oh OK. Uh, I have not bought any yet, but I'm definitely going to stop and try and look at some point to see if I can find some. They were about two two bucks cheaper on TCG than they were on eBay. So okay. easy breezy, given that there's a 5% kickback on TCG player today. Oh, yeah, there isn't there. Uh, and it's not even I will say that we are also not really at peak supply either. Right. Like you just said a couple minutes ago, the peak supply is about four weeks later. And I, I agree with that, uh, that we're not there yet. But I don't think that's really going to matter for a card. Um, a very a specific foil rare. We're not peak supply, but we're talking not talking about like a just normal rare. We're talking about foils, which are much more uh, hard to come by, much harder to come by. Even if it fills in, it's going to be really hard for it to push much lower than five dollars for a foil rare, given yeah. that it is definitely going to see play in commander. Might see 
some significant important play in modern um if this was to follow follow the three dollars or four dollars or whatever i'm just gonna buy more like go ahead and dollar cost cost average down the curve if you believe it's got a couple bucks more mm-hmm, to go mm-hmm. i i definitely don't want to be f- stuck flat-footed not holding this card yeah i'm gonna have to buy some all right let's move on your second pick of the week uh all right so my next one this week is uh a little bit of a sidestep let me just pull that up uh sensei's divining top from ema um and all credit due not to myself but to our listener chris pachulski who pointed out to me uh using the theories that (laughs) using the theories that i've been outlining for people for a while now about working the you know targeting staples that have a steep price curve across available copies and a low inventory number um, he flagged uh, this pick. Sensei's Divining Top Foils from EMA are available out there around $40. Keep in mind that they only have one other pack foil version, which is the original from Kamigawa Block from a million years ago. Um, and then there is, I think it's an FTD Relics as well, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Um, and assuming that people do not necessarily prefer that version and that EMA foil rares have popped off several times this year already um as supply of that set has dried up a couple years out from its release um and it seems pretty unlikely to me that we're going to get it again like in the next year or so i would suspect there's such a backlog now of reprints that things that have not seen a reprint in five to ten years are much more likely to pop up than yet another reprint of divining top um so uh some total i think you know this is probably good for a 50 percent gain um I, I wouldn't go super deep on it but i think holding anywhere like up to a playset of this would be just fine yeah uh foil sense size divining top obviously was way bigger deal back before it was banned in legacy but still a popular card in plenty of places cubes commanders commander especially this card is very good Thirty thousand um, a lot of decks on edh rec yeah yeah, it's so easy to put this in everything. A lot of use cases for it. So I'm I'm right there. I, and I agree with you roughly on the price movement. Although, to be honest, I think you could actually do a little better than 60 quite reasonably. Uh, I mean, once this sells out, like it, it's not it's, it's going to be easy for it to be more than that. Right. Like people aren't there's not going to be an influx of copies suddenly. Uh, the card is already so expensive. It seems like if it sells out of 40, it'll be honestly, I would think like 90 um depends how long before it sees a reprint right but yeah this is all assuming no reprint i mean it's it's a nice looking foil uh the art is great um on this version and and not as iconic as the original obviously but both will do Mm -hmm. still solid all right what's your next pick all right well i'm gonna jump over here to uh, anointed procession foils um, the card really had a lot of steam, uh, much more than I had anticipated that it would. Initially, I thought that you'd have a lot more room to work with this card, uh, but you didn't. We didn't. Um, it was pretty valuable almost very quickly out of the gate. So there's a lot of demand. It's up to seven and a half, 7.5 thousand EDH decks, which is pretty significant for a card that's so new. Uh, I mean, this is uh, what a, a year and a half old, maybe um two two years now maybe Cat was two years ago now so still pretty new uh 
I'm doing pretty well on EDH. Remember our, our, oh, you know, we usually start considering EDH cards at three to 4,000. So this is about double that. This is the white uh, doubling season, essentially doubles the number of tokens you create. Foils are about 10 bucks right now. Um, I'm seeing a few at that price point. Uh, and then it kind of jumps up 12 and 13 and then it's 25. Um, so there's not that many copies available. There's even fewer at 10 bucks or less. The card has clearly demonstrated a popularity in Commander. Uh, I mean, doubling season is a banner card in that format for a reason. This gives you a similar effect in a different color. It just seems like that's going to keep getting picked at and picked at and picked at. Uh, and you'll be able to get out of these at 20, 25 uh, pretty easily in probably six months to a year. Yeah. I mean, Anointed Procession as the Parallel Lives flip side. It was marked very early on as being something we should be go after. I think this is the second time we've talked about it. And I didn't realize foils <laughs> had faded back to 10. That's definitely a buy point. Um, as you said, significant EDH play, unlikely to ever see less. It's important specifically because it's in white. And so the white uh, token builds that didn't necessarily, that don't also have green, don't necessarily have access to parallel lives and or doubling season. Um and for doing things like doubling angels um, off of Divine Visitation, for instance, or is that the card that I just clubbed Cliff over the yes. head with? Yeah, Divine Visitation. Yeah. I mean, those work nicely together. Um, and there are many other synergies. So, yeah, I think this one's uh, also a slam dunk. And uh, it's going to be years before we see this reprinted. Oh, yeah, for sure, especially in foils. Well, I, this has the hallmarks of something they could get get thrown into a fall commander deck real easy and set off the whole there are no foils chain reaction yep absolutely all right what's your third pick of the week uh my final pick is one we've talked about before as well and i think that originally i was picking these up as low as ten dollars now at 25 there's less meat on the bone but um sometimes the dynamics you just gotta suck it up and swallow a lesser uh, return in recognition of the facts. Growing rights of Itlamok, I originally had a bet with Jason Alt that by the spring of the year it was released. I'm assuming that's last spring, right? Came out last fall. Um, uh, yeah, sounds about that right. That it was going to be in, I think, 2,500 plus EDH rec decks. And if I recall correctly, I lost the bet. Um, it did not show up in that many decks. The lag was longer. But now, six months later, it's in almost... 5,000 plus EDH rec decks, um, which suggests that many people have come around um, between the various commanders that came out in Dominaria and the token-focused commanders that have come out in Guilds of Ravnica, including Azuni and, uh, I guess, Slimefoot from Dominaria are two solid examples. Um, It's pretty clear that commander players are coming around to the usefulness of the card. um, And as a result, the fact that mapster pieces are... You know, have no supply refresh point. Nobody can pop any boxes to get them. Um, buy lists uh, attracting uh, cards in as the price curve steepens is really the only way you're ever going to see additional copies. It is inevitable that the market will outpace the supply through buy lists and this card will accelerate. So I'm setting a relatively conservative out target of $40, but I could easily see this ending up being a 50 60 even $80 foil rare a few years down the road. Uh, yeah, I mean, the sorry, it's not even a buy box, the mapster piece. So, whatever you want to call that, yeah, they're so not mapster piece, they're (laughs) so 
so generally hard to come by and there's just absolutely no way to add the supply was very low to begin with um i agree with you that they're in very good position to hit at least 40 and realistically probably a good bit more than that as this gets more popular you know 40 might be your target for six months ish uh but i can see 80 to 80 being your target for uh over a year yeah um i got a question for you james go for it should i do the last one on my list today or should i save it it's tricky because i called it a while back um it hasn't done anything for anybody yet uh so it might be worth pointing out and having a discussion about just on that basis alone okay my third card that i put on this week uh with a big question mark after it is mox amber um, I know James and I have spoken at length about it in the past. We're both very interested, but cautious and wanting to find the right buy-in point. So I was browsing today. Uh, Non-foils are at $7.50, 8 bucks, and foils you start at $30, and there's a fair bit of them at that price. Uh, or should I say, you know, there's more than one copy at $30, so that's a, a pretty good number. <clears throat> The question is, is, are we there yet? Like, is that, is, are we at the point where it's supposed to buy these? Cause there's definitely a number where we do it. And I just don't know if this is it. Uh, I'm leaning toward this being roughly the floor. I do think these could theoretically hit for instance, $5, yeah. but I think you have to wait possibly a year. For them to get that low like people are going to be real reluctant to be listing moxes at three and four dollars so it could be some time before they get that low uh, and it might be better off to just get in at seven bucks uh and say okay well you know if they get a little lower i can live with that because it, the floor is really not any lower than four or five dollars uh and it hedges against it suddenly getting good overnight and you missing out on an opportunity you're probably going to get a chance to manufacture five to six dollar copies of this just by leveraging an ebay sale or a vendor sale um mm -hmm. or looking for discounts over the holidays when prices tend to get depressed um just like me this <laughs> please married guy uh so this one is an interesting case study right because the power level's off the charts but it doesn't have a deck and it doesn't have a deck because the preponderance of uh, mythic, uh, sorry, not mythic, legendary permanence that can work with it does not yet exist in modern in a way that makes it worth building a deck around. The question becomes, how long does it take before that set of cards emerges and will it ever? If you don't like long shots, this isn't the card for you. But if it is ever played in modern and becomes a tier one deck, it will be in the same way that, say, humans or uh, Hardened Affinity appeared out of nowhere and suddenly became like permanent fixtures in the format. If a deck shows up like that that uses four Mox Amber, then this is going to be a $30 or $40 card overnight. And if you got in anywhere near $5, you're going to be killing it. So I already picked a bunch up at 10 and they're in the box of shame for now. But that was always the intent that this was going to be a real long-term hold where you're taking some risk to have really long-term upside. Um, like, and you got to just decide if that's the kind of thing you want to be doing, especially in the same month that you could have just flipped mythic edition for plus a hundred percent. 
I yeah, I I mean I I hmm. I think you're probably okay to buy in. I think you could also probably wait. Uh, you could also hedge and buy a playset or two now with the expectation that you'll pick up a playset or two more as they kind of, you know, buy buy in as they go down the curve type of thing. The opportunity cost is definitely real. You know, do you want to spend the money on this one? You could be buying uh, Mythic Editions, of course. Not everyone has those avenues available to them all the time. Um, and there's always opportunities. Uh, but I, I do think that at some point in time, you anyone, I don't just mean you, but anyone will regret not having bought these at seven dollars. Um but I and but but I and I, I guess specifically though, I hundred percent on board with the idea that you wait for a sale, whether it's you know, TCG's five percent kickback is probably not quite enough for me, but maybe you get some really good trading credit at a retail site that has them for about the same price as like TCG Low, or someone does a sale on Mythics at fifteen percent off or something. You know, anything like that that can really give you a little bit more of an edge, and then you then that's where you get in. Okay. Let's move on to segment three, our metagame week in review. This week, uh, not a lot. We had two Grand Prix this past weekend, but they were both limited, so who cares? The uh, most recent event other than that is a MTGO standard PTQ, uh, about 350 players just under. Real obvious here what the story of this event was. Uh, let me read out to you the decks. Golgari, 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 Weenie, White Weenie, Golgari, 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 Just Guy. Uh, so it was a good weekend to be casting black and green cards. Uh, five Golgari aggro decks and, and one uh, Golgari explorer. Uh, and there's a lot of overlap there anyways. Our aggro decks are uh, heavy on the Doom Whisperer. That's the 6-6 six, six flying trample, pay to surveil to mythic demon guy. Um, uh, we got a four Jade Light Ranger, which is part of the reason we saw that on our top movers list this week. Uh, early Earlier tonight. Uh, we're looking at some Landwar Elves, Merfolk Branchwalker, which is essentially the smaller Jade Light Ranger, some Chupacabras, some Seeker Squire, uh, a little bit of Assassin's Trophy, Fine Finality, uh, and then uh, a couple of Raskas split between Golgari Queen, the new 4-mana, and Relic Seeker, the 6-mana. Um, interestingly, the, the winning deck playing three of the 6-mana Raska and two of the 4-mana. Um, so overall... Uh, looks like a pretty mainstream, I guess, straightforward Golgari sort of two for one type of deck. Um, you know, that's almost everything. Most of the cards in here are two for ones or otherwise generate, uh, some pretty decent advantage. And frankly, I'm flipping over to Golgari Explorer and I'm trying to figure out what the difference is. And honestly, it's just the numbers of the same cards. I'm bouncing back and forth and they're <laughs> like the creature suite is the same, except the numbers are slightly different, but they're still playing like four Jade Light Rangers and they're both playing some wild growth walkers. You know, it looks like the biggest differences in the other spells, the Explorer decks are playing a pair of Karns. Uh, I see some Eldest Reborn, the Saga from Dominaria. And in place of the new Vraska, the four mana, they're playing Vivian Reed, which again, we talked about earlier today. Um, but in general, the same rough strategy. So all about Golgari this past weekend, at least on MTGO. I saw a deck last week posted somewhere where Karn was back in the mix as a four of because they were running um, stuff that made treasure tokens and uh, treasure map. 
that looked interesting, but it's not clear that the format's not just going to collapse around these super value green black decks where everything's a two for one. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I would flag here, not for standard, but uh, Assassin's Trophy in particular, the question as it was released, okay, so Assassin's Trophy, let's go for through the timeline so far assassin's trophy gets announced everyone's like it's the best kill spell ever and then some of the lashback is yeah but in standard you might not want to play it on curve because giving them lands is really bad um and sure enough we're not seeing it necessarily as four ofs here it's mostly as two ofs um the in modern the question became like is this enough to reinvigorate green black or jund Um, how many copies would you play? Would it be a mix of like two of it plus two abrupt decay? And how might that therefore like support or not support various price points for the card and specifically for foils, which I'm certainly interested in trying to make money on if I can find an entry point. One of the things that's caught my attention is that the latest Jun decks I'm seeing posted or the green black decks um, are running it straight up as a four of. So in a Star City Games article uh, this week that was by Caleb Shear, I believe, um, he proposes a, a Golgari, Golgari mid-range uh, <laughs> by Sam Black that has uh, no copies of Abrupt Decay in the main. Um, four Assassin's Trophy, four Fatal Push, two Collective Brutality, three Inquisition of Kozilek, one Maelstrom Port, Pulse and three Thoughtseize, along us, you know, the usual suspects in the creature suite, Scavenging News, Tarmogoyf, Tireless Tracker, and Tassiger. Notably, there are four Tireless Trackers, so those foils, if this posts up as a, a major presence in the meta, um, Tireless Tracker foils could see some movement. And I'm starting to wonder whether um, there are, like, foreign foil assassin trophies now in the 60 to 100 range. Um, if it's a four of permanently in a big in a good deck in modern, those could easily end up being hundred and fifty to two hundred dollar cards. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah. I mean, it's it's it looked amazing. It slowed its roll a little bit out of the gate. You remember last week, I was like, oh blah blah blah, and the decks are playing uh, Assassin's Trophy, and you stop me, and you're like, no, they're not, and I'm like, oh uh-huh. okay, I guess not. But now they're pushing a little bit more, uh, which isn't that surprising, honestly. <clears throat> Uh, I mean, $50, $60 foreign foils, is that what you said? Yeah, but like it's, you could get a foil Russian for under 100 and like some of the lesser languages in the 40 to $80 range, depending Un- on what you're talking about. Under 100 for a foil Russian copy is pretty interesting because a multiplier on those is usually like 4x as it is, right? Like you're at least doubling a... For any card that is any what desirable, you're you're basically doubling or tripling the base foil price. Is that correct? Well, if we look at like, for instance, foil abrupt decay, uh, like Russian buy it now on eBay. Cheapest copy is one sixty-five. So pretty easy to believe that Assassin's Trophy can get to that mark. Now, it took Abrupt Decay not too long to get there, but it hasn't really moved much up from there since. So, hmm. so, so maybe you buy these sure. now, and then as soon as they, the Russian copies spike, you just dump them immediately and move along? Maybe. the It could just be you're waiting for the eBay sale, like you want a 15% off coupon, and then you feel pretty good about it. Um, 
again, yeah. we're not at peak supply. We're not at peak supply. But it, it might just be that come the holidays, that might be the time to target. And, and I just, there's so much other good stuff. I, as much as I, this card is so premium and I want it in my collection, the, it, it can't be the priority from a financial perspective. There's a lot of downward price pressure, and you're and you're buying into it right now. Yeah, yeah, it's tricky. That's yeah, it is tough, and I'm I'm not versed on Russian foils. Uh, hmm. Okay. I mean, other than that, anything pop out at here? I mean, there was a white weenie deck. White weenie decks it, it was a bit of a surprise for sure um d- didn't see that coming but i guess like again the strength of history of banalia which is another mythic you want to be selling out of because once it's done in standard it's not going to do anything ever again um although the uh the prints of the art are stunning if you can track those down <laughs> and may appreciate over time mm. that's uh hmm. Hmm. still for history of banalia uh, I just got control. Nothing exciting. I don't know. Four Deafening Clarion, the card that makes Rosewater skin crawl. Uh, and there's your four Teferi, mandatory Teferi. Oh, the only four Teferis in this top eight. Of course, you know, we should mention MTGO top eights are uh, flexible, um, a little more swingy than you see in other major events. So. Uh, an all Golgari weekend could suddenly be replaced with a six white weenie deck weekend. I do think that if Golgari is sort of your standard, if you know the, the two for one value deck is is a tier one standard deck, that sort of opens the door to extremes. Um, because if you have, you know, if that's your baseline, then to get underneath it, you play a hyper fast red deck or to ignore it you play a really weird combo deck that just sidesteps a card advantage issue or you play a super grindy control deck that goes has to go really far down that scale to outdo the advantage so i think having a mid midweight card advantage golgari jundi deck uh pushes the other decks in the format to extremes which also opens the door to weirder cards getting expensive because you need stuff that's very distinct and uh uh uneven almost um in as opposed to another yeah. format where you have a little more balance in the middle of the metagame but uh, yeah i don't know how much this really matters at the end of the day to our discussions i mean i'm curious whether green white tokens as proposed and played by todd stevens early on here is you know whether it's going to post up in the metagame or not According to the standard metagame online, we're looking at Golgari, Midrange, Mono Red Aggro, Boros Angels, and Grixis Control. Uh, Celestia Tokens is only making up 2.86% of the meta, which suggests to me that it's falling out of position. Um, but it's interesting to note that Venerated Loxodon showed up as a 4 of in that White Weenie deck. Um, and that was a card that Todd had flagged in the set review as like a dollar rare um, that he thought was undervalued that might go up. That could be the kind of thing that if if one of the decks that runs it, either the tokens deck or the mono white weenie deck that's now showed up, um, continues to run it as a four of it could end up being three or $4 card to buy list or two or $3 card to buy list that you picked up at say 75 cents. Um, depending it, but it's pretty heavily reliant on you getting the timing, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You trying to, to pick that off in both directions is going to be quite challenging. Mm-hmm. 
All right, so I mean, we'll see how things shape up as we get closer to the Pro Tour, but I think the the lingering uh, piece of advice uh, that's most obvious right now is just sell the standard stuff from last spring and last fall that is hot right now um, before you lose the chance to do so. Agreed. All right, so now we've got a pretty exciting segment. That brings us to segment four. We have with us Hall of Famer Martin Yuza. Uh, all of you out there in the Magic community, I'm sure know the name. There's no possible way you could look at GP coverage without knowing Martin. He has got uh, something like more GP top eights and wins than anyone in Magic or something close to it. Um, just a, a prolific player. Um, Martin, thanks for joining us. We're really glad to have you here. Hey, guys. Thanks for, ha- thanks for having me. Hello, hello. Martin, um, congratulations. Uh making the magic hall of fame thank you squad of 2017 that must feel pretty fantastic yeah it's it's definitely uh like a lifelong achievement or something you know it feels it, it, it feels pretty good yeah i'm not gonna lie <laughs> i mean this is on the back of four grand prix uh wins 28 grand prix top eights which i think is you know probably one of your more impressive statistics three pro tour top eights over two hundred thousand dollars in lifetime winnings all since the mid 2000s um not and we haven't even spoken yet about the ev of the the beta draft you did in vegas this year yeah that was, um, was a good weekend so you know channel fireball associate um man of the world uh play the game see the world certainly has been part of your mantra with the number of gps you've attended uh thank you for joining us today sure yeah no problem do do you have the most gp top eights of anyone i do these stats are like one year old i think you pulled up the stats for when we got inducted in the hall of fame yeah yeah so it's 31 now she has 30 and somebody has like (laughs) so you're in the lead something so you just have to convince him to quit magic, and then you can maintain no, we, your lead permanently. No, we kind of just wanted to, to hit the thirtieth one together in huh. uh, wherever it was. I think it was Washington D.C. That was a team limited GP. What we got like six or something because we needed to win the last round. We like drew in the you know fifth round of extra time. We we couldn't delete damage or something. So right. So so let's hit the rewind button and talk about how you got into the game of Magic: The Gathering. I mean, like just like everybody else, I think you know. Back at high, back at high school, my friends were playing this this interesting game be- between the between the classes. I was like, "Hey, what is it? How can I play?" And you know, I just started playing with them. We started playing local tournaments that led to BTQs, and then I just started playing GPS. And I guess in the early days, I just mostly just like traded cards and like you know enjoyed building a bigger collection and like try to play different formats and that just eventually led to me playing the GPs and the pro tours. And you know, now we're here. And were you, were you a strong English speaker at the time? Were you playing with English language cards? Oh yeah. We don't, you, Europe has like Spanish, German, French cards and maybe Portuguese and something, but we don't have like Czech language for, for the cards. No, it's, it's all in English. Right. So you were, so you were doing this in Czech too. That's correct. In Czechoslovakia. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Back at home, yeah. I, I live in the Czech Republic. Okay. Right. And so, so was was there a language barrier for the game, given that only people that had strong English skills could parse the technical language of the Magic Cards? Not really. No, I think if you, like most young people speak English, we we have that. It's mandatory in in school. So Got it. most mandatory. Just, you know they know what's going on, and like you know maybe there's some some words that 
we're not I, I, Americans are always surprised when the rest of the world is multilingual. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's it's pretty easy to to play magic. I think even if you like, you know, don't speak that much that that much English, it's still pretty easy to to be able to you know navigate through the game and tell what's going on and like you know maybe some of the cards are a little harder to understand, especially the old ones. But you can just ask someone and you know. So so, do you have any memories of what the crown jewel of your collection would have been when you first started playing? Uh, when I first started playing, no, not really. Uh, but then, like a couple, I think like a year or two in, a friend of mine and I bought a collection for like three thousand dollars. A year to into playing Magic, maybe like yeah, maybe, so what, what, maybe what? like two, like you know the. I don't exactly re- remember the timing and everything, but it feels like it, it would have been like two years in or something. And the collection. And what year do you think that was? 2002, something like that. Okay. So just, just, just ahead of like the ramping up of your competitive career. Yeah. Something like that. And like the, the collection included uh, like six or seven pieces of power and like a bunch of dual lands and fetch lands and all that, which obviously these days it's worth 10 times as much, maybe even more than that. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's even more than that. And, and is that so, and is that something you flipped immediately no, 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 or no, you no. held we, on to? We, we, we still have it. My friend is a lawyer. He doesn't really play <laughs> too much magic, so he doesn't really care. And I always just, like, let this uh, let this lay in my drawer. And I'm like, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe one day it's going to be more expensive or something. And, like, now I just enjoy watching how how expensive the the old cards are, <laughs> are getting. Obviously, this this also comes with with not just the great stories about how, how everything is more expensive and I still have it. I also traded away a bunch of cards like, you know, Netherwoid and, and the Abyss and Candelabra of Taunus and all that for $20, $30 each or something. And now the cards are worth because, so much more. Because so many players don't re- from that may have started in the last five or 10 years don't realize that during that period of time where people were playing, like when Standard was called Type 2. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and beyond that a lot of those cards that were on the reserve list didn't have a format where they could be played. I mean, there was no EDH, no commander. Um, Legacy was not a thing yet. We were heading into like extended um, where a lot of those cards didn't have a home either. And, and vintage was, was as it is now relegated to, you know, relatively infrequent niche tournaments. Yeah. I, I honestly didn't even know that something like reserved list existed for a while. Right. That's and so and so this this collection that you've been holding on to this whole time. Do you have it like posted in a TCG file or something somewhere so you can watch it? Oh it no, grow? I don't. I just have stacks of cards in in my in my closet. <laughs> <laughs> Is any of that stuff gradable? You and I were talking off cast about how you've been delving into what's gradable yeah, and what's probably. not. Lately. I just I just took a library of Alexandria from it because it's, it's one of my favorite cards, and I and I sent sent, sent that one for grading, but. Yeah, I mean, there's probably a bunch of cards. Wow, I mean, li- library was is, was on our top movers this week. Oh, really? Um, as it's heading, st- starting to push fifteen hundred. Um, and I called it mm, last winter, probably to hit two grand within eighteen months, which looks like it's on okay. track. Um, pretty much any of that stuff that's like a thousand dollar tier two reserve list uh, icon. Uh, has a pretty good chance of doubling up. Cool, I think. cool. Well, glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> just so we also talked a little. Just bit. stop over at your friend's ahead, house. Travis. Like I need to just borrow those cards. Just gonna grab them. I'll <laughs> you a couple hundred bucks for them. That okay? No uh, problem. Yeah. Well, this, <laughs> but it sounds like Mark. It sounds like you've had possession the whole time, right? Yeah, but there's also there's a there's a good story that I have with. Uh, I always wanted to buy Juzamjian because you know it it has it has the same name I do basically. Right. I'm like yeah, I'm just gonna buy it one day. I mean, I was always like walking around the dealers, the GPs or whatever, like people trading cards. I'm like, yeah, it's like a hundred dollars. Maybe I'll hmm. get it later. That's you so know, much. You know, it, that's a lot of money to just buy a card that I'm never going to use. And then, the, then obviously, as time went by, with the creation or whatever of of the the old format or the the oh uh, yeah old school. Now, when I finally bought it, the card was like six sixteen hundred dollars. So. <laughs> yeah, I should have I should have just just bought that one way 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 earlier. They, it's another example another example though like even 5 years ago nobody yeah. saw that coming. They really just the card appreciation on all of those types of things was always just a little bit faster than people's salaries could increase. Oh, yeah. Like you were making more money each year, you know, and I don't mean you Martin Hughes, I just mean like people would make more money each year. Uh you know, they get a new job, you graduate college, you kind of step it up. But like, oh, I went from making minimum wage to like 15 bucks an hour. But oh, the card I wanted went from $20 to 400 or, you know, you know, 200. And it's just it always they always felt out of reach. And now you get to this point where libraries are $2,500. And you're like, uh, nope, that's that's done. We're, yeah. we're done here. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think yeah. about it? Magic is a pretty good investment. Like I hang out with a lot of casual friends of mine back at home. And they have like you know EDH decks and, and stuff like that, and like we would always joke about how how much money they're putting into their decks every month when they're you know buying the old cards and like you know the dual ends are expensive and all that. But then like every single time they just look 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 bad, uh, look 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 back at the, the the previous purchases, and they're like, yeah, I bought this for you know a hundred dollars and it's four hundred now. They're just like, yeah, this this all was like a great way to invest money, basically. Because imagine we we would instead spend spend our money on you know golfing or skiing or something like that. All the equipment would be old now. You would you would never get you know that much money for it back. And with all the magic cards, they can just sell it and just make three or four x back or whatever. It's one of the one of the things reasons that we've been involved with the MTG finance side of Magic for so long is that it really is a unique condition that this is a hobby that potentially when man, when your collection is managed properly can be something you can play with essentially for free. Because if you manage your collection really well and you pay attention to MGG finance, our belief is that you can essentially play the game for free while even going beyond that and, and having your gaming assets appreciate, which as you said, compared to most sports where all of the assets depreciate as you use them um, is a pretty special situation. Yeah, for, for sure. It's so, it's definitely a it was a great investment in the past, but future in we obviously think there's still a lot of activity in the market, but like it it it, it at no point in time it would it have ever been prudent to liquidate your four hundred one k or life savings and buy magic cards. Even knowing what we know now, it still would be like no, you shouldn't have done that. It was never a smart decision. Would have worked, but it wasn't right. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's it's tricky, be, tricky because hindsight is always twenty twenty. So something that mm-hmm. you know you could this could easily have ended up being a, like Beanie Babies. I don't know if that has any resonance for you, Martin. But in North America, there was these little stuffed dolls in the in the early two thousands that were a big deal for a long time. But most of them are worth nothing now. Okay, and you know the many collectibles have 
have spiked and died in the time that magic has survived. So um, survivor bias is pretty real. Yeah, yeah magic, magic is a very special case. I, I, think, I think it's mostly because R&D is just doing a tremendous job of keeping the game interesting and, and, and unique and special so that there is more and more people playing and that's why that's why all the all the old cards are getting you know more popular too and it just it just it, it's just pretty great that something like that lasts for like 25 years and there's still more and more players yeah a game a game that's go as strong as ever at a quarter century is definitely impressive so the um you talked a little bit uh off mic about uh you have a pretty sexy cube that you've been putting together over time that's also in the- yeah that, that was one of the things where i was like oh my god i'm putting so much money into <laughs> this even though i only play it you know every every month or so when i'm back at home with 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 my friends but like now when i look 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 back at how much money i spent for for the cars i it, it just feels good knowing that it's it's all worth you know three times as much or something it's like <laughs> it's like a normal cube it's we alternate between vintage and legacy so it's a powered cube uh, it's a powered cube. Sometimes it's it's fun to do the powered stuff and like all the all the storm decks and everything, but you don't always want to do that. It's like sometimes we just play the legacy one because it teaches you more more about magic and it teaches you a lot about like you know sideboarding and drafting and um, you know a lot of that that stuff. Do you? I assume that it's all the powers black bordered, Martin. Uh, no, it's it's unfortunately unlimited. <laughs> Did- does, uh, I'm not that yeah I'm not that that big time to, to have <laughs> power and everything. Hall of Famer, Hall of Famer. Well, I do technically have a beta beta time walk now, so there's that. <laughs> we'll get we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. So sure. the talk to us a little bit about the EV of being a semi-pro or professional Magic player, and as someone who's been you know has the, the top uh, count for grand prix top eights obviously you have been on the road for a large portion of your life can you talk to us a little bit about um you know your non-magic career your magic career and how you have managed to manage all of that over time oh well the ev of being a magic pro is is not very it's not very high unfortunately uh if you're trying to make money doing something definitely don't start playing magic for me the reason why i started doing that was because because at that time the the Watsi Moto was kind of the play the game, see the world thing. Right. So, you know, when you qualified for Pro Tour, you'd be able to tell your friends, like, hey, I qualified for a tournament in Honolulu or a tournament in, in, in Japan or a tournament in Australia. And that was really cool at that time. And it allowed me to basically travel the entire world. Uh, but if you're trying to make, you know, big, big money or something, you're definitely not going to do that playing GPs or Pro Tours. Maybe, you know, one day we can see the magic tournaments uh, award as much money as, as, you know, poker or something. But for now playing for, for me is more, more, more that I like enjoy the competition and I, I, I enjoy traveling. Uh, and obviously a, a big part of that is possible because of, you know, we get sponsored and like see channel fireball is a, is a great sponsor for us that allows me to, do a lot of this traveling and stuff. So that is a big, big part of that. If, if you just wanted to play magic to make money, you would need to do something else than, than play tournaments, unfortunately. Well, this stumbles upon a question that I was curious about. Um, in the, the, essentially the, 
the end goal of the magic lifestyle. Obviously, you've had a prolific career across Grand Prix and Pro Tours, but over the course of 15 years, um, I mean, well, let me let me let me back up. Let me back up. Do you, as somebody who attends, I'm assuming it's in ballpark of 25 to 35 Grand Prix a year. Uh, so, you know, half the year essentially or more, do you have a like semi-normal job as well? Or are you strictly a magic player? I think the job for magic players is like you create content. So the, the strategic websites, they, they, they pay you for, for creating the content. You get paid for articles, you get paid for making, making videos and, and stuff. This is basically what I've been doing because like the cost of living for me in the Czech Republic is much lower than what I would have to pay in the U S. Okay. So every virtually all income streams and uh, you know nearly all of them are magic related for you then right now yes i used to do other stuff i used to play poker and like you know stuff like that but uh for a while now magic has been my source of income yeah okay so and you you actually answered a question that uh, uh, you raise a good point that i hadn't really thought about before is that the cost of living in the czech republic is much lower than it is in other countries which makes the purses and the various payouts that magic provides which is all based in uh, u.s currency uh, much stronger um just out of curiosity what is the rough uh, cost of living in the Czech Republic relative to any random U.S. city, essentially. I mean, there's a huge gulf between, obviously, where I live, Buffalo, and like L.A., but, uh, you know, just, you know, in general. But I guess the easiest thing, it's like, the easiest way to answer it might be, you know, what is what is an average rent in your home city in U.S. Yeah, dollars? I think it's like two or three times lower than that. Like the like rent for like a normal, normal sized apartment is like four to five hundred U.S. Sure. Uh, how much I sp- how much I spend for food every month is also like four to five hundred US. So like you know, while somewhere in LA or somewhere somewhere else, you like your rent might just be like fifteen hundred. Right. Well, well here here in Toronto, Canada, they just released the uh, stats for average rent in the city last week, and it was twenty four hundred Canadian, which is about two thousand wow. US. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Well, it's funny you we guys also- say that because you're so you, Martin, you're saying four to five hundred a month for rent and food, you know, separately, which. And for James, five hundred dollars a month on rent would be insane. And you're and Martin, I know you're in LA right now, uh, which is also one of the most expensive cities in the country. It's like the third most or something. But I'm in Buffalo, and you can absolutely rent at five hundred a month. I mean, five hundred a month can almost get you a single, uh, and you can cl- easily do that if you have a roommate. And four to five hundred for food is also comparable. So it sounds like the Czech Republic, and this <laughs> is essentially the same cost of living living as Buffalo. So I guess. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, it might be pretty similar. I think we we also like for health. The healthcare in 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 Canada is is it free? Yeah, it's similar to Europe. Yeah, we have we're paying like sixty dollars a month or something, and like it includes like you know if if you need a surgery or whatever you need, it's it's included. Yes. Yeah, ours ours is through is basically through income taxes. So it's uh, but as with many socialist healthcare systems, that the quality of the healthcare is necessarily worse i mean whole different topic but <laughs> yeah we, okay, we so, can't go down this road because yeah. i will get <laughs> so the, the bottom line is that that contributes to your ability to embrace that lifestyle but i think we can probably all agree that you're in a fairly rare position right like there's a lot of a lot of pros that have struggled to try to make all you know the various um factors uh in grinding the gp circuit and pro tour uh scene uh work for them right yeah, I mean, obviously the the the, the cost of living 
helps with that and like you you also need to to hit the highest levels in the in, in the pro club and everything like without that it also wouldn't be possible but just with the platinum appearance fees you know getting paid three thousand per pro tour or something is is also something that just helps you a lot to be able to do that mm-hmm. so I, I guess i have i have two questions on this topic the first is when you look across the the rest of the platinum club and down into the golds does this is it sustainable for the other platinums or are and are they um having to maintain full-time jobs or pull funding from other sources to keep doing it and as a you know in conjunction to that like what's it like for gold players is it a is it really a struggle what's it like when you look at your your peers well you would you would have to you would have to ask them i think unless you just create content and make make a bunch of money that way so you, it's probably really hard to be able to do that by like living off the i, I don't even think gold gets any appearance fees yeah i, I feel mean, like i remember hearing they that get, it got slashed. they get like paid, they, they, they get like paid tickets to pro tours and that's it i think right although the so, yeah, the conditions for that have just recently shifted under their feet as well right now that we're moving to the six pro tours a year 200 less people per pro tour you only attend the pro tour that's in your geographical region so play the game see the world is now a big question mark um What's your take on the on all of those recent changes that were just announced a couple weeks ago? Well, they they haven't really exactly announced what it's going to be. They like said like you know this is what we want to do in the future or something. I think the next couple of pro tours are still the same thing they have been doing for a while. So it's still going to be like you know four fifty or something people. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think it's pro, it's pro tour in London in April. That's the last I think uh, the last breath of that system, and then after that, uh, in theory, we're going to the new model. I mean, I, I'm. I would have to see all the numbers and everything on like, you know, the, the price payouts and everything. I know that they're, they're so, currently working on, on, on figuring all this out. So hopefully they're, they're, they're going to get it right and people are going to be happy. My understanding is that price payout moves from a million to 1.5. Um, after London, they're dropping the attendance from like four to 450 down to 200 to 250, something like that. Six pro tours instead of four. And I think, and then the regional redirection. So if you qualify from APAC in January, but your Australia Pro Tour is until December, you're basically sitting on your hands till then. Right. So the the, the price payout is going to be exactly the same because it, it increases because there's two more Pro Tours, but right. it's still going to be 50 per Pro Tour. And then uh, there's going to be less people, but they haven't, they haven't said what the qualification s- system is going to look like. So it's going to be, you know, if it's going to be way harder to qualify – it might be different, you know, it might be better or worse. Depends on that. Right. The Pro Tour qualifier system is, is getting a revamp as well. So, I mean, my, my quick take on it, having looked over some of the information, was that it probably favors pros like yourself that are already in, in that top 200 pros around the world, right? That this is kind of a, an attempt to redirect funds to um, supplement the viability of participating as major personalities in the scene but possibly it probably hurts the people that are, you know, much further down the rankings. I mean, honestly, it, it could be, it could be one way or, or another. I'm not really sure how, how the qualification system is going to work. So, you know, they, they, they might just do something completely, completely different than what we're used to. So uh, uh, unless I see that, I don't want to see if it's, uh, I don't want to say if it's better or worse. Yeah, it's still early goings. Do you, do you have any input on the c- combining of pro tours with GPs into this new concept of the Magic Fest? 
Well, from my perspective, it means that I'm going to be able to play less less GPs because it always used to be, or like for a, for a long long time now, it used to be that uh, there was a GP in the same city as the Pro Tour the, the week before the right, Pro Tour. Right, so right. Like right now, so you get to double up. Uh, right now, it's there's a GP in Atlanta. Next week, there's a Pro Tour. So for all the people traveling to the PT, it's a good way to just play an extra tournament. You know, maybe get some extra pro points. Next year, it's basically going to mean that there's going to be six GPs that we're not gonna, we're not going to be able to play, which is a little unfortunate. But you know, maybe they're going to make up for it in a different way or something. I, all right. So I have one last question on this sort of pro player lifestyle that I, I really want to ask, uh, and then we can move into some of the a little more uh, tangible financial components, but what what is your plan when you're done with magic um i would imagine that you don't intend to play magic professionally until you retire so and while you have developed an extremely impressive resume within magic and it no doubt speaks to a uh competency and uh intelligence it is still a fairly narrow skill set so i guess where are you planning on taking that when you eventually get to the point where you decide that this doesn't really work anymore or you decide to kind of move on. <laughs> He's just going to uh, sell that collection from his closet and retire. Right. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, I don't really have a good plan for that right now. I mean, it depends on, you know, where like some of the, some of the parts of like esports are, are getting better. And it, it is, it is, there are like tournaments in other games where you can literally win millions of dollars. So if this if this continues getting better, like I see no no reason for me to quit doing this. Do you um have you felt any temptations to dip your toe in the waters uh, of some of the digital card games that have appeared, like Hearthstone? Oh yeah, I do play Hearthstone casually, and like I have I have started being interested in 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 Artifact just because you know they're they're paying way more money and. And it looks like a like an interesting game, and especially if it's made by by Richard Garfield, who is the guy who created Magic. Then I assume he had twenty five years to think about you know what's <laughs> what's, what's good and bad on, in Magic, and just translate that into another game. So we're we're gonna see if you know if that game is is any good. Hmm. I mean, one of the things that I think has been interesting in a lot of the digital games that have come out recently is how they handle resource management. The The potential for land screw in Magic has long been a thorn in the side of the player base. And, you know, I think everybody agrees that if they could go back and redesign the game, they would probably, that would be the, the part of the game platform you would be most likely to revamp. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see that Magic has managed to stay on top, um, at least in its, in, in the physical segment. Um, despite other games like, say, the new Final Fantasy TCG having a much better approach to resource management? Yeah, I certainly I certainly do enjoy and like appreciate the way it works in Hearthstone, where you just get one mana every turn, and you just work with that, and like all your drawing is gas, basically. Like, obviously, in Magic, you know, getting land screwed or land flooded or whatever, while getting to four or something is, is, is not a great feeling, but I don't, I don't really think it has a really good fix right like at this moment yeah i mean you can go ahead and retrofit magic completely with a different system but you're basically relaunching the game and invalidating all of the cards <laughs> so because yeah. the the power curve just falls right off the table as soon as you start messing with you know auto land counts and whatever 
Um, all right. So let's talk a little bit about um, one of the things that's always been like interesting to me about the semi-pro professional magic player community is to what degree um, you guys uh, speculate on cards, given that you have arguably the best position to evaluate upcoming shifts in the meta based on access to similarly brilliant minds that you're testing with. And especially, you know, you work with channel fireball teams, which are some of the best on the planet consistently. Um, what can you tell us about your experiences on the pro tour, either yourself or teammates or people, you know, in the community speculating on cards as a way to supplement income? Yeah, it's true that we have the, the best position in this because it's basically us who like shape the metagame especially if we're like a, a part of a bigger team, you know, of 10, 15, 20 people. And then all of us are, are, are going to show up with, with one deck that's obviously going to affect the price you yeah. know, of some of the cards and everything. But uh, I do have some friends who, you know, buy some of the cards in Magic Online, for example. But for, for me, uh, I think this was, this was possible like a while ago, but not really, not really today because today with the, with all the, with all the, free information everywhere and all the articles and deck lists online, the metagame basically gets solved within the first couple of days or weeks. So like right now, if you look at standard, like nothing really is going to su- surprise you. It's just a bunch of green, green, black decks. You're just trying to figure out, you know, what's the best version. Some people are trying, you know, blue, red or whatever. Some people are trying some, some Jessica control with the, with the fairy, but it's really hard to show up to a tournament with something completely new and broken and something, you know, nobody has ever seen before. And like, so something nobody has thought of. So I think these days there really isn't that much room for speculation unless it's like the first couple days. And like, you see some card and you're just like, wow, this card's broken, which I think happened a few times in the last couple of years. Like, for example, I remember when we were testing for a PT and somebody casts a smuggler's copter <laughs> and then just you know attacks with it a few times and this, the same happens in game two and game three and i'm like wow this card's really good and it's like one or two dollars or whatever so we mm. we buy a bunch of them and like the next the next weekend there is a star city hug game hug games open and there's 32 of them in the top eight so the card goes up to like ten dollars <laughs> or whatever but then, then you have to like you know you have to buy a bunch of them you have to sell a bunch of them so like in the end the the profit is not exactly like something some 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 crazy number uh so you know average <clears throat> pros sitting around testing for gp or pro tour uh and you know a set is could just come out like guilds of ravnica and somebody casts a card uh, under city lick lick or whatever and uh, you're like damn this once this thing resolved that seemed really good and then it happened in game two and three and it seemed really good how how frequent are conversations or even comments about the value of a card like is it just like you play with it you got to talk about it, is it good blah 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 then at one point you're like oh yeah this card's kind of cheap and you know you talk about it for three minutes then you move on or is that is the value of the cards peppered and a common uh thread through all the conversations yeah i would say that we don't really pay that much attention to it it's just like when you see it and you're like okay yeah maybe, maybe you know the flip jays or whatever is one of the good examples sure when, when we're like oh this is an interesting card and we end up buying a, a, a bunch of them but like i don't really recall too many other scenarios where we would just be like oh wow this card is you know only two dollars and it should be so much more let's just buy a bunch of them 
Right. So, so in, the like pro, in the Pro Tour testing house, you guys aren't reaching for TCG player and ordering 50 copies very often. No, because like by the time we test for the PD, it's usually about a month into the into the new format. And so, so all, all the all, all the like getting to know all the cards happens within the first like week or something, and like you would just basically have to discover it yourself at that time. Right. So one of the big factors here that you're alluding to is that the Pro Tour is no longer like a week after release; it's six weeks after release, and with most Pro Tours being standard, as you said, you're you're walking into a solved format. Yeah, yeah, basically that's yeah that's that's how it works these days. So like the speculation, uh, there there was some room for it, you know, back in the days, but but these days it's it's really hard to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, w- when you're a- attending a modern tournament, uh, how often are you working on you know brand new deck concepts where so- you might flag a card and go, wait, this is you know, for instance, like in the last couple of years, like the appearance of humans and then uh, hardened affinity. These are decks that largely came out of left field, were discounted or ignored for the first few weeks before they started putting up major results and then became fixtures in the format. Um, have, have you experienced or, or heard t- tell of other pros, um, you know, diving deep on cards as a result of modern testing? Yeah, sometimes modern does give you that... Uh... I remember, yeah, I do remember. Like hardened scales was a was a good example. I don't exactly re- remember how much it changed in, in price, but like for me, it usually it it usually means that like I know we're gonna use the card probably, so I'm just gonna buy it just so I have access to it and don't have to buy it for four times as much later. So like instead of just speculating, I'm just like making sure that I don't have to spend too much money <laughs> when I do actually need to buy it. I just assumed there was like a magic eagle that flew to your house and dropped off cards from Channel Fireball with a nice bow on them. No, no, no. I, I fortunately have, I basically never like sold cards. So I do have like a legacy modern and standard collection of just everything. And it, it's, it's, it's also for like, uh, convenience re- reasons so that I don't have to like, you know, before every tournament, I don't have to message 17 and 17 different friends and then like show up an hour earlier before the tournament starts and get cards from everybody that just like you know that 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 takes a long time and and i do value the the convenience of just like being able to just you know reach into my box of cards and just build the deck myself and you know not have oh, to worry I can about only it imagine that's annoying we, when you play three gps a year uh much less <laughs> constantly i would think there'd be a tremendous value in time just in buying four x of the entire set right at the outset of the it being printed and being like there we go i'm done for the next four months yeah it there's a, there's a lot of so, there's a lot of people that actually do that they, they just buy a four x of of everything that's in the new set but it's obviously much harder to do it with with modern and there's a lot of pros that just like go into modern tournaments where they just like submit the deck the day before and then they show up during during buys at like nine ten, nine or ten a.m and they don't have a single card for the deck and they're just like looking for hey can i borrow this can i borrow that do you have you know four of these and four of that that's amazing by the way really just <laughs> fantastic that they show up at 10 yep. o'clock in the morning with uh probably zero cards and zero sleeves and like oh, i'm sure i'll find them yeah that that that's why you like <laughs> see the people uh sometimes play like the you know the the land box basic lands or whatever that's usually that's usually <laughs> when, when people just show up in the morning and they, they don't even have, have have the basics do you do you remember <laughs> the story about um uh god what was it the one equipment that destroys other equipment in that gp so the, 
um, Minakusari or something. Yeah, have you heard that story? Yes, yes. Oh uh, no. There. So legend has it, and this has probably been exaggerated since then. But legend has it, somebody, and I, I want to say it was Bertoncini, but I'm not sure. Registered a deck with that card uh, because at the time. Batterskull was big in the format. It was relevant in the format. He registered that card as part of his deck and then showed up to the site. Or he showed up to the site, registered the deck, uh, but didn't have the card, checked every dealer booth in the room, and nobody had it because it was this crazy uncommon from like 15 years ago that was not used anywhere at the time. Uh, and he was starting the sweat bullets. So he started checking with players to see if anyone had a copy. And at the time, the card was like a dollar maybe and found somebody with one is like, oh, this is great. I registered it in my deck and none of the dealers in the room have it. And the player's like, uh-huh. Okay. It's $25. <laughs> and, and and he had to pay it because if he didn't pay it, he was getting game lost. <laughs> I did hear something like that. Like not, it does ring a bell. Yeah. There was definitely something like, like that had happened a while ago. That's that's wild. That's uh, living by the seat of your pants. It's funny that they all do that. I would, you know, just assume, yeah, Channel Fireball just kind of like says, okay, what do you want this time? And can you not walk over to the CFB booth and just have them give you cards? So sometimes uh, when like, you know, last minute, uh, that happened actually in uh, GP Detroit like a couple of weeks ago. I it was it, it was Team Modern and I showed and I show, showed up and sat down started shuffling my deck. I'm like, this doesn't feel like 60. I'm like somebody who has been playing magic for a long time. You just, you just know what it's not 60 cards. You just know when it's, you know, 59 or 63 or whatever. And I'm like, right. it feels off. So I just like start going th- through my deck and I'm like, Oh crap. I, last week I played legacy and I, I put four street rate in that deck and I f- forgot to bring them back. And I'm just like, Oh, I only have 56 cards. So I just like ran to the CLB booth and I'm like, Hey, can I borrow for first, first street rate? And I'm just, <laughs> I'm gonna bring them, you know, back after the tournament. That that worked out fine. Pro, do they pro check privilege. your ID? We're gonna need some ID, sir, before well, we land these we, cards. We, we we know each other by by now. <laughs> <laughs> so so, how big is your collection, Martin? Uh, I mean, I have all the standard legacy and modern cards. So, <laughs> are we talking thousands of cards and oh, yeah. a bunch oh, of four yeah. rows? I have all the these like the large boxes with four rows that I think fit like 4,000 cards. Depending on like, which one. And I have five, like 20 yeah. of these boxes or whatever. And like, I'm pretty organized. So 20. <laughs> yeah, so, I, so, I, so I, please tell me you have a will so that if, if you randomly heaven forbid die in a, in a random train crash um, at a foreign GP, will somebody in your, in, amongst your friends and family be able to figure out where all this value is stored? I'm going to need to do something about that, but I'll, <laughs> I, I always tell my mom, like, hey, a lot of the cards are, like, very, very expensive, so if, you know, something happens to me, may, make sure you get in, th- get in contact with someone who, who, who can tell you which ones. You're, yeah, you, you, you have an unfortunate incident, and then your, you know, family walks into your room, a wall is just covered in magic boxes, and they're like, well, Martin dedicated his life to magic, but I'm sure all this is crap, and they just throw it all away. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that could I, that I, worth anything. I had to give my wife a education last year on the value of my magic closet, and how if I was to meet an untimely demise, it is the uh, likely source of my child's future education. So please pay, then, please contact and, the following individual for assistance. He had yeah, to like, explain what to do in case of an untimely demise. And then he told her how much it was worth and he nearly met an untimely yeah. demise. And then I noticed poison <laughs> in my coffee. Yeah. Especially some of the, some of the old cars are super expensive. And this, this also just like shows, 
shows in like real life. I I I'm talking to like you know my friends. Some of my friends are are dealers at at Magic tournaments, and I was looking for something at like a standard GP, and a bunch of them didn't even have standard cards. And I'm like, hey guys, you know it's a standard GP. You know, do you have like a you know rekindling phoenix or a scarab god or something? And they're like, no, not really. We're you know we like now nowadays we usually just just bring a bunch of old, old stuff because even if we you know if if you flip whatever 15 scarab gods and you make ten dollars on each you made 150 dollars or whatever but if you sell one one beta dual land and make you know 400 on that one then that's so so much better so they're like yeah we don't have to bring a million cards and we're that just doesn't bringing, seem you know. sustainable <laughs> yeah i mean i don't know how many beta duels do they have floating around? They can just show up and toss one at a dealer every couple weekends. I mean, the the big dealers at the GPs, they usually have a bunch of, you know, like pieces of power and some beta stuff and like, you know, all this, all this old. So, so speaking of beta, I, I was in attendance at GP Vegas and had the pleasure of watching three different Channel Fireball pros gang up on a unknowing table of individuals in a beta Rochester draft that will go down in the ages <laughs> as one of the best EVs of all time uh, of any tournament. Talk, talk to me about okay, how Channel, a- talk to me about how Channel Fireball just decided to dominate uh, one of the loosest EV situations ever to hit the. It was the it was it was super random. I almost I remember that I registered for the qualifier in advance and then i woke up the morning the morning of the of the qualifier and i'm like still tired from jet lag and everything and i'm like i kind of don't don't, don't want to play and i'm like starting to look through facebook if there's some somebody at the site that i can message uh who would be able to drop me from from the tournament but nobody was there so i was like yeah i don't really want to waste 50 bucks i'll just get up and and walk over there <laughs> and i just you know randomly end up winning the qualifier without even knowing all the all the details and somebody's like it's not just a beta draft you're also playing for an alpha starter and there's like some some cash on top of it i'm like wow that's that's actually insane and then just like the next two qualifiers ended up being one way by benessa and and louise so people were just like oh yeah this cfb or something but we just happened to I don't know. Draft good decks and have have three good pools or something. It, it it looked like some kind of like poker scam movie where you're like you guys set up a poker table and invited a bunch of rubes to it and then po- proceeded to fleece them ultra hard. Yeah, yeah. CFP's yeah. like we're just gonna run these beta drafts. Everybody signs up. <laughs> three CFP pros end up in the top eight. Hmm. The value of these qualifiers was was super high. It was uh, so crazy. There was a bunch of people who just like didn't even play the the modern GP, and they were just like I'm just gonna play all the all the eight qualifiers because I really want to make it to the beta draft. And this also, the next pro tour was, was uh, at the same weekend as Gen, as Gen Con and Gen Con was the second place where they ran the, the second, the second beta draft. And Ben starts like, Hey guys, so I have this plan. And, and me, Ben and, and, and Josh, Josh are, are teaming for the team pro tour. And Ben is like, Hey guys, I'm going to go to Indianapolis on, on Wednesday. I'm going to play the qualifiers, right? And then, like, on Friday morning, I'm going to fly into Minneapolis and I'm going to show up for round one, right? And I'm like, are you serious? Or, like, you know, is this, are, are you for real? And it's like, yeah, I just, you know, I just really want to, you know, try the try the qualifiers. And if I, if I qualify, then the, the draft is on Sunday. So, you know, no big deal. 
and I'm just like, do you really want to do this? Like, you're going to spend hundreds of dollars to fly to Indiana, to Indianapolis, <laughs> play a qualifier until, like, 3 in the morning, then take a 6 six a.m. flight, hope to not have the flight delayed, and then show up for round one, like, you know, right right before the round starts. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's a great idea, right? Do you, do you want to go, too? And I'm like, no, no. And then, like, it took us, like, two weeks to convince Ben to not do this. Ben, the, the, ben Stark, home of many yeah, stories. Uh, yeah, oh, I don't yeah, know like, Ben yeah. Stark, and I don't know a lot about him, but everything I do know, that sounds like exactly him. Yeah, Ben is like, yeah, Ben is all about EV and just like, yeah, this makes sense. Like, if I'm late, I'll pay you guys the EV of me losing the one round, which translates to $27 <laughs> each or whatever. <laughs> yeah. so, that, is, that is how we so operate. How degenerate is the average magic professional? Uh, as a gambler, yeah. you mean? Just, it just in general, like, like I'm gonna. Fl- this Ben S story is a perfect example of what I would consider peak degeneracy. Like, is that just everyone at all times? And are you always all gambling, or is it much more uh, controlled than that? And you just no, have a few. Not, not all of them, but not not all of them. But let's just say, without naming names, there has been an instance of two people flipping for an appearance fee of three thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> stuff like that yeah well i mean that's that's definitely within magic culture uh you know there's certainly a lot of behavior like that that allegedly occurs amongst uh vendor culture you know flipping for uh for various odds and ends including just stacks of money um now just wondering if that perpetuates pro culture as much as it seems to on the vendor side yeah. All right. Let's get, let's get back to this beta draft. So for people that don't understand the setup here at GP Las Vegas, there was a series of qualifying tournaments. I think you guys were playing uh, Dominaria Sealed, right? Dominaria Sealed, 256 players cap on, on each of the Sealed. So all the right. five O's would make up the entire top eight and the winner of the top eight draft got to draft the, the beta draft. Right. And so you guys are sitting down for a beta Rochester draft. Um, I was lucky enough to be one of the the people on Sunday night. And it was pretty funny because they had to wait till the GP proper was over. And I remember every, distinctly everybody were standing around kind of like pissed off because they were dying to get to the beta Rochester draft and didn't nobody care. I felt so bad for the people in the top eight of that GP. Nobody cared. They were just like, get these guys off the stage so that coverage can set up and get this beta Rochester draft. Um, on camera and then for the 150 of us or so that were sitting around watching that go down the the level of tension and excitement i don't I, I think it's easily in my top three magic moments of all time watching you guys draft those those packs yeah, the best this, part the, of this is that they were originally not even going to cover the beta draft yes right. people just 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 you know started talking about this on twitter and they're like oh this is really this is really cool and like when where, where can we see that and once you just like you know there's a gp you can see that and people are like, "Oh, that's a you know, that's a huge missed missed opportunity. We would really like to watch that." And then Watsi's like, "Oh, let's let's cover that then." And then they have yeah. like you know twenty five thousand people watching or something, which is and, or three yeah. times as much as you normally get watching right. a GP. And then all the coverage staff had to stay late on a Sunday in this massive convention center, and it was a total nightmare for the for the support staff. But yeah, they the, they they had to they had to like yeah they they had to like hold the. The semi-finals and finals of the GP, I think. And then, like, the dismantle of the GP just started, like, one in the morning or something. Ugh. So then Ben S., I think, pulled the best, right? He pulled uh, Underground C, if I'm not mistaken. And, and Green Box. 
and green mocks, right? Emerald yeah. mocks. Uh, what a, what a good day for him. And then in pack 19, you pulled time walk. Yeah, the, that was pretty great. And I, I like the way my weekend was, was going. I ended up playing, like I won the qualifier when I was, you know, not even going to show up to the site to play that. Then I played the modern GP with humans and I didn't even play any games. So I was just like, I'm just going to hang out in Vegas and just, you know, enjoy spending time with my girlfriend. And I ended up making top four of the GP running super hard. And then I'm like, the the way I'm running, I'm 100% going to open some piece of power. And then like the first rare, the first rare, I don't know what it is, but I think I ended up picking a counter spell from it. No, I think I think you oh, took yeah, Rock Hydra. Yeah. Really. Then, like the 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 second of my first picks, uh, Eric Levine lays out the pack, and he's like, he was supposed to tell us the what the rare was because there is no symbol or, or, yeah, or anything, yeah. and we always you know the hundred no, and he like looks at the pack and he's like, I don't even know what is the rare here, <laughs> so we just start laughing. I don't know, like yeah, that's probably a pretty bad rare, but I think there was a counter spell in the pack, so I ended up picking that one, and then. The third pack, I'm just like, okay, here it is, now or never, and I get a time walk. And and so, did he tell you which card you, the rare was? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I I seem to remember it being fairly obvious from the crowd response. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the uh, so that's got to be the highest return on matches played in your entire career, right? Yeah, for sure. Like it, it like the <laughs> we didn't even know like how valuable it was to be sitting at that table because we only had you know like a day or two to learn about all the prices and like you know learn about all the the, the stuff that that comes with grading cards and like all i did was basically just just try to learn what what the rares are and what are like some of the most expensive cards and like you know because the the old school format is is raising the prices of cards like you know counter spell and swords to plowshoes and stuff like that so it was just basically trying to learn the, the the prices, but then if you look at the if you look at the draft, we were basically picking basic lands over rares, which obviously I learned after the draft that, that that's not a great idea because every single rare that comes with you know from from just open beta packs, which is going to be basically mint, is, has a chance to grade high, a couple hundred dollars, or if it grades super high, you know you get like a. 9.5 quad and stuff and then it just goes into into some you know super high numbers so we were basically picking basic lens over bad rares because we were like yeah basic lens is worth you know 60 dollars or something so i'm just gonna take it so it's uh that's an inter these are interesting comments to me because you said you had to like stop and learn all of this where you know i don't know all of them myself but i feel like I'm surprised that people so intimately involved with the playing side um, and especially so much closer to uh, older formats like, you know, obviously LSV is a huge vintage proponent in the way that most people are. He wouldn't be more well versed on that type of information. And I guess I'm not giving him a hard time. I'm just I'm just a little surprised because we kind of assume pros are very knowledgeable at all components of the game. And then it's kind of funny when you guys are like, oh, we didn't had no idea what to do with any of this. And we had to go try and figure it out a day beforehand. Well, I mean, part part of it is because the like there's so so some of the cards are super obvious, you know, the power and the dual lands and everything. Then we were talking about some of the old school players and they were like, you know, red is really good and white is really bad. So, for example, if you're faced with the with the first pick of of Hill Giant and Sarah Angel, you should pick the Hill Giant and just try to draft red, especially because it, it, it's a Rochester draft where you just sh- show the other people what color you want to be. 
And like while while we're talking about this, a similar pick actually happened. But then the the person actually picked the Sarah Angel, even though it wasn't in his colors. And then the Sarah ended up grading as a nine point five quad and sold for like four thousand dollars or or something. <laughs> so there's like, like you know, you're trying to win, you're trying to win the draft because, because there is an alpha starter for first, mm-hmm. which uh there was an offer for it for like sixteen k or something. Yeah, somebody standing offer. It. Yeah, somebody wants to buy it like right there. Uh. The, Although my understanding, my understanding is that if I recall correctly, LSV ended up with that after all was said and done. Yeah, they, Despite, they ended up doing like some kind of split or something in the finals where where Luis ended up with with the starter, I, I think. Uh, and like you have you have this that you have to take into account that you're playing for a for a starter that is worth a lot, and you only need to win three matches to get it. But then also you have to take into account that like all these cards are worth so much money. But then also you have to take into account that like. If you draft all the cards that that can go into your deck, you're still gonna end up with like 20 lands in your deck. So add to that that you're gonna make a bunch of you know money picks or whatever, and you can very easily end up having like I ended up playing 23 lands and 17. <laughs> so like all of this, all of this to figure out is actually not not that easy. Uh, it's, and like yeah, it's actually block, it's a really weird format, but actually highly technical, especially if yeah, you haven't yeah, done yeah. it before. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and like speaking of the time walk, even though I ended up playing twenty three lands, and I could have very easily splashed, you know, three islands at a time walk, I was like, I'm just not even, I'm not even gonna touch it. So I just, just, just put it in a sleeve, set it aside, and and, and never touch I'm it. I'm imagining you guys sitting down to that draft, and like you have like a piece of paper <clears throat> that you're referencing, and they're like, you can't have pick lists at the table, and you're like, no, 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 this isn't a draft pick list, this is a value pick list, and it's like the most expensive actually- cards in order, and which uh, which ones you're supposed to pick to make money on. <laughs> We actually yeah. ask for that if we're allowed to use like, <laughs> you know, a, a piece of paper with the prices, or like being able to look it up on our phone. But but we were we were de- declining that. that <laughs> that's, thing. that's hilarious. So, uh, did you say that the time walk is out for grading, or is that has already been graded? Yeah, it's it's. I I, I gave it to a friend of mine who sent who sent the who sent the cards for grading, and I'm gonna get them uh, later this month. And like Ooh, yeah, like, exciting. Obviously, you- now the question is, you know, what are you gonna do with it? Like. I have no no real attachment to any of the cards. Like I, you know, I don't really want to keep them or anything. Maybe, maybe I'll keep you know one of the cards or something. But like, should I should I take the time walk and and sell it now for like fifteen grand or something, or should I should I take the time walk and just throw it in a drawer and and you know three years from now check what the price is and then pay for my wedding or something, or you know what am I supposed well, to? You do already told us what you're. So, so, no so the fir- so the fir- so the first question. The first question is: Do you have a sense when you sent it off what kind of grade you're expecting to get back? Oh yeah, it, it should it should be a nine point five. Like a lot of the a lot of the cards graded as nine point five quads. It's, it's basically it's basically back fresh cards that have never never been like really really even shuffled. Like we how, we made how was the centering on it? Uh, pretty good. Some of the cards that are like on the edge of the sheets, like for example, the counter spell is uh shifted to one of the sides because i think that's what happens to most of them from what i read right but the the centering on the time walk is, is pretty much dead perfect wow so i mean my my quick take on it is probably that unless you need the funds it's a hold um the market for cards over five thousand dollars is necessarily quite small like sub sub fraction of one percent of the total magic player base would even consider it but the people that can afford it have very deep pockets. 
And there's been so much action in that space that, you know, pending a global recession, which is a possibility in the next couple of years, the the value, uh, if it does grade 9.5 quad, the you know, the population of that card, the total number that have been graded at that level is so small that it's almost certain to gain over time. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's most likely what I'm, what I'm going to end up doing. But if somebody wants to, you know, offer some super high number because they want to get the time walk from the beta draft and something then we can, we can certainly talk. And, I, 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 I mean, I, I would at least consider an offer. <laughs> sure, sure. So when you get serious, feel free to hit me up. Yeah, sure. I'll I'll probably like post it in some of the the Facebook, you know, graded groups or something and and I've been I've been actually paying attention to to there's like an auction, I don't exactly remember the name, but they like post their stuff on eBay. Mm, and yeah. one of the beta time blocks just recently like it was a 9.5. I think one of the subgrades was a 10 and it sold for like 16 grand or something and people were like commenting on it that they thought it would that it would go for even more than that. <laughs> So maybe maybe Christmas is is not like the best time to sell cards. Maybe it's better to wait, you know, for when people get their their tax returns and stuff. Yeah. And, yes, yeah. that's true. the uh, The other thing I would note is that Brian Nocenti, if you've been paying attention to the high end Facebook group, uh, he's a central figure there. Um, just announced, I think today, that he is a consultant with Heritage Auctions, which is one of the bigger auction houses internationally. Um, so they are basically he has prompted them to get into collectible trading card games with a focus on magic. Um, might be somebody you want to reach out to, to see what his situation with heritage is and what the details would be if you wanted to get broader auction exposure. Interesting. Yeah. I do recognize the name from, from reading the, reading the, the groups. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've interviewed him on here. seems, seems like a good guy. Um, okay. has a pretty solid reputation in the community. Um, anyway, congrats on pulling a beta time walk. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Probably a definitely a once in a lifetime on that. Yeah, like we, Ben, ben obviously ended up being quite ahead, but uh, Luis opened like, you know, like a fast bond, like a Nevinerals disc and something. And even though it wasn't like the most exciting stuff, he ended up having it graded like right right away. And uh, like basically all the rares I think came up at as as nine point five quads. <laughs> so I think he's pretty happy about that too because we were talking about that and like the population of all that stuff. And it was, it wasn't some pretty, pretty uh, low, low numbers as far as the population goes. So I'm pretty sure he's, yeah, about some that of that too. stuff can get like well, almost and, and, into single digits in terms of quantity. Yeah. Well, it's got, it's got to be the highest EV of any top eight ever. I think oh. when we look at, if we added up everybody's, e, everybody's graded card values after the fact. Yeah. Like, and, yeah. and then, the the thing is that was the first of several unlimited and beta dra Rochester drafts that went on around the world throughout the rest of the summer, but none of them even touched the value from your table. In fact, one of them I think they skunked out completely and pulled no power at all. Yeah, I think, um, I think it was Gen Con doing, maybe. They ended up doing beta draft here, and then like all the other anniversary GPs, the the other four, they had an unlimited draft. And I remember being in Barcelona for the GP and played the main event, and they were just they were announcing the the qualifiers and they had like 20 25 30 people for the qualifiers and i was like maybe i should just drop from the gp <laughs> and just, just play that instead yeah no kidding and, uh even though like those drafts were not for sure i think the one in japan they end up opening like a lotus like a red mox and like you know yeah, I, there's a mox ruby in that one 
yeah, like like a like a bunch of good stuff, but it was still limited, obviously. But then, I think it was. I think Gen Con was beta, but I think they skunked out. Yeah, Gen Con was beta, and they had like a black box only, I think, and like a it's dual land or great. something. Hey, did... yeah, and then <laughs> and then <laughs> only only fifteen thousand. Did you uh... right? And then 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 they had then they had uh the first place for. I think Barcelona and like Sao Paulo was like a beta on Kachit of beta commons or something. So I, I, I don't exactly know the price of that, but I'm pretty sure it's in the, you know, four to five digits somewhere. Like yeah, five yeah, yeah. Or something. Did, uh, did sure. you happen to find out in the course of your involvement what, how Wizards accum- acquired those packs? Oh, I don't know official, but, but uh, from what we have been told, it's it's I think from from the vault that they have, where they just have a bunch of the yeah, old that stuff. That's what I was told. And like every now and then they use it for, you know, some of the stuff at Price Wall or you know this this kind of thing. Yeah, Cor- Corbin was on coverage team for the draft, and during an aside, told me that it was definitely from the vault. The question being, how deep is the vault? Um, yeah, my guess is not all that deep. <laughs> yeah. They didn't have a lot of reason back in the day to hold back very much. Yeah. So, uh, who knows how many of those drafts will ever occur again? All right. So we've we've kept you for long enough, Martin. Thank you so much for spending the time with us to go through your uh, your many accomplishments, your experience in MGG finance, uh, the lifestyle of the MGG Pro uh, scene, and your experiences with the Beta Rochester draft in Vegas. Uh, fantastic to have you. Exciting to hear all about your uh, many adventures, and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk to you again in the future. Sure, no problem. Thanks for having me. It was uh, it was a great time, and uh, I'll run you down the next GPI, Matt, if I see you. Yeah, and cool. Yeah, for sure. I'll be in. I'll be in. You know, New Jersey and Atlanta. I will not. <laughs> but good luck. <laughs> sure. Good luck. Good luck, and and may all of the uh, changes to the Pro Tour benefit you and uh, and the other hardworking pros on the scene. Yeah. Thanks. That that'd be great. All right. Thanks a lot, Martin. You have a nice night. Yeah, thank you. Have a nice evening, guys. All right, Martin, one one other thing I wanted to squeeze out of you was the stories about you misplacing very valuable magic cards. Oh, yeah. So so, so in Vegas, after the draft, uh, we're like sitting down to write down the deck list and everything. And I just take the time walk and I, I put it in a sleeve and put it in, a, in the big top loader. And then I'm just like looking around where to get basic lands. There's just a you know there's a table where somebody was 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 drafting a while ago and there's you know stacks of cards and 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 basic lands included so I just walk over and like put my stuff down and just look for the right basics or whatever then just get my stuff and and, and walk over to, to to talk to my friends and some random guy was just going through the stacks of cards to just find you know commons and uncommons for his deck or something just yells at me he's like hey is this yours and he's holding the, the time walk <laughs> in his hand and I'm like oh my god. So you left a fifteen to twenty thousand dollar magic card <laughs> sitting in a pile of basic lands, and then some guy. Hey, is this your beta time walk? Hey, is yeah, this that twenty thousand dollar bill right here? That happened within like five minutes of the draft ending, and I'm, I'm pretty sure the the guy didn't even know what card it was. So, so the flip side of this story is that I would have been standing within fifteen feet of that, and I missed a, a beta time walk that was sitting in a draft pile. Yeah. I am very capable of, 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 of doing this stuff. And like this actually happened to me again when I finally bought the Digism Genio 
years later for 1600 instead of, instead of 100. And then I, I brought it back to the U.S. and I was going to give it to my friend of, friend of the GP to send it to Beckett to have it graded. And then I'm just like, I take the, the gin and a library and I'm like walking down the, the hotel um, hallway to the elevator and going downstairs to just, just cross the street and go to the GP. And like while doing this, I just somehow must have dropped the dropped the gin. And I'm just like, oh, I only have the, the library on me. What happened? So I just walk back and everything. And I'm just thinking that I probably left it in the room. But no, it's just nowhere to be found. The car is the car is just lost. I'm just like, okay, well, it's my it's my bad. I guess worst case, worst worst things have happened in life. So I'm not gonna, you know, <laughs> be, be like, God. but like obviously, I was pretty upset. And then like a week and, later, and- <clears throat> I, I obviously talked to all the people in the hotel. They told me that you know nobody found it and everything. And then like a week later, uh, after I left the hotel, I get an email that. Hey, you know, based on your description of the the item that you lost, one of our housekeepers found something last week, but they like misplaced it or whatever because they didn't know what to do with it. And we just found it. Is this your card or whatever? Uh, and I'm like, yeah, that's 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 the card that I lost. You know? Yes, that would be the one single tear down the cheek. <laughs> Jeez, that's, that's, the story of, that's the story of me just losing stuff everywhere. I have to I, I have to say, Martin, you're a very nice guy, and I'm glad you got your time off back. I think the collective value to the community of you losing the beta time walk instantly after drafting it would have been worth more than the fifteen thousand dollars of your pocket. <laughs> Just as a story for like, did you hear what happened to Martin Yuza at the Vegas beta draft? That would have been told to everyone who's ever played Magic, and that would have been worth more than Especially oh. when it was like matched with the coincidence of how I found a ta- beta time walk just <laughs> lying around at GP Vegas. Yeah. Greatest FT- FTG finance story of all time. Yeah, I'm pretty glad that the guy who found it was probably just new to magic and just, just only new standard stuff or whatever and just didn't really know what it was. Now, I, now this guy, that guy's got the story about how he found $15,000 on a table and gave it back instantly. Good story. Yeah, that guy probably has no idea that he was the... MVP of that evening or whatever. <laughs> I, I, w- I want to know if that guy went back and was like, yeah, I found this. Is that guy over there? Does he like a real magic player? Be like, oh yeah, that's Martin Yuza. He was in this event, blah, blah, blah. Be like, oh, because like he just took a card from me. Well, what do you mean he just took a card from you? Well, I found this card. I don't know what it's it was. Proxy. And he said it was kind his. Proxy. Yeah. And his friends just like aghast that he had just handed $20,000 over. Just, you did what? Yeah. I mean, granted, it would be stealing, but even still. Did did you give him a booster pack as a reward? I didn't even th- think of it. It was it just all <laughs> happened so fast that yeah, like, I didn't even get a booster pack. If I had more time, I would obviously do oh, do that. But it just all happened so fast, and I was I was in the middle of somebody looking at my deck, and I just didn't want to lose more stuff or something. So I just walked. The, back the, fu- the, fu- the funny thing is, they Wizards was throwing packs into the crowd at one oh, point yeah. just yeah. as they were setting up, and some guy pulled a workshop. Yeah, they mm-hmm. they were throwing like packs like all the way to arabian nights and stuff so yeah it, it arabian nights like, and, and antiquities packs were thrown into the crowd yeah it started with like somebody asking like, hey are you guys excited for this draft and, the, and people are just like yeah you know it's whatever and somebody's like yeah i'm excited and i think it's it's aaron Forsett, and he just like throws this this old one thousand dollar pack at that person's like yeah you know get this pack or whatever so <laughs> it was pretty cool martin yeah. i want to tell you that i was the guy who gave you that beta time walk back and I will give you my address <laughs> if you would like to send me the reward. You know, something you think is appropriate. Yeah. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Let's go with that. It was me. 
So that's a wrap for this week, folks. Thanks again to Martin Yuza, Pro Tour Hall of Famer, uh, fantastic all-around guy, and total luck sack. Um, <laughs> where can people find you online, Travis? Uh, I'm on Twitter at wizardbumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N, and I write every Monday for MTG Price. Uh, I do the Watchtower series. It's a card to kind of out on the horizon to keep an eye on. Uh, and how about yourself? You guys can find me on Twitter at MDG Critic as well as via my weekly articles on mdgprice.com. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mdgprice.com Pro Trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 139. No, 140. 140. 140. 140. Jeez. Okay. Uh, I thought it was an awesome episode. Really glad to have Martin on. I thought it was a lot of fun. Hopefully very insightful for you guys. We would love to try and score some more of those in the future uh, with some other people who can provide that sort of insight. So we're going to do our best to bring you some cool perspectives out there. Um, had a lot of fun, James, and I will see you next week. Thank you, Travis. We'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Thank <laughs> you.